we're in back in our Acts expository series. We had a topical last week, chapter 2, 39 last week. Today we're in chapter 4, 1 through 12. Hear the holy word of our perfect God. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them, being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They laid hands on them and they put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of high priestly descent. When they had placed them in the center, they began to inquire, By what power or what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, by which he became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Amen. Let's pray. What a holy God you are, Lord God, and what a merciful God you are. We see it in Christ and his cross. We pray today that we would consider the things of this passage and they would strengthen us to be found busy about your business, Lord Jesus Christ, on the day that you call for us, whenever that may be. We're very confident, Lord Jesus, that you rule and overrule all of the opposition engaged against you and against your church, and you will prove victorious. We pray these things in the name of your name. Amen. The larger passage really runs to, what, 22. This is a courtroom setting. It's very similar to the courtroom setting, Christ's first courtroom. Jesus was put on trial both by the the church, the Old Testament church, the Jews, and then he was put on trial by the Gentiles, by the the state, the secular, so-called secular, even though nothing secular. And so we have the, the arrest of Peter and John here, they're arrested for preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's some basic things that we have here, doctrinally speaking. I guess if I were to say, what's the main teaching? The main teaching is, as the gospel goes forth by the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, proclaiming Jesus is prophet, priest, and king, the only savior, no other name given under heaven. As that message of Christ goes forth by the servants of Jesus, the servants of Satan will fight back. The devil is not pleased when Jesus is busy plundering his kingdom, the devil's kingdom, by his own gospel. That's how he does it. Um, Isaiah chapter 61, 1 and 2, Jesus sets the captives free. The devil is not happy when the captives are being set free because Jesus is the strong man. He is stronger than the devil. And the means by which he emancipates or liberates or frees people from under the tyranny of the devil is the ministry of the word, law, gospel particularly gospel. And so what we see here is the devil's servants are not happy about it. But the other thing that we see attached to the malice of the devil against the work or the progress of of Christ's gospel 
is that Jesus Christ sustains his church. We talked about it this morning. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. And no evil formed against any true believer, eternal evil, will prosper against the people of God because God is for them, Christ is for them. And so the devil is fighting back against the advance of Christ's gospel and Christ's gospelers, Peter and John in this case, Christ's people, we are preserved. Christ is victorious. I mentioned this in Sunday school as well. In this world, we see a battle raging in the heavenlies. And we're not fighting against flesh and blood. We're fighting against powers and principalities, though they're using uh, flesh and blood people, in this case, the high priest, in this case, the Sanhedrin, fighting against the servants of Jesus Christ. We don't ultimately fight against human beings. They're forces of wickedness. But we're being taught that Jesus Christ is victorious. And though found, those found in Jesus, we are also uh, victorious. And when we look at the opposition that the servants of Jesus Christ endure for preaching the gospel. Jesus said this was going to happen. Um, many times, we've, we've mentioned this on, on a number of occasions, sometimes folks share Christ or testify uh, of Christ to other people saying something like this, believe in Jesus and everything will be wonderful. Truly, if we believe in Jesus truly from the heart, we repent of our sins, everything is wonderful. The Father now is our Father. We have the indwelling Spirit. We have the blood of Christ cleansing us from unrighteousness, the prayers of Jesus. So truly it is wonderful. And we're joined to a larger family, uh, other true believers. That, that is the case. But it is not the case that the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ, that the world of flesh and the devil now are, are uh, at peace with us. Just the opposite is true. Jesus says in John chapter 15, if they hated me, meaning the world, and what he means there specifically is the worldling, the unbeliever, both in the world, outside of the church, and inside of the church. I've mentioned many times it was the church that killed Christ. They just got the world to do it. So it was the Jews that killed Christ. And in fact, in the book of Acts, um, the apostle Peter says three times, um, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4, you killed Christ, you killed Christ. You got the Romans to do it, but you killed Christ. So it was the worldling, the unbeliever in the church, and the unbeliever outside of the church, um, though they hated Jesus Christ, they will also hate the people that love Jesus and serve Jesus. I'd say this as an aside. When we receive the malice of the unbeliever, this works to, it should work, to the assurance that we are in a state of grace. It, it should work to the, the assurance that we are deeply loved by God in Christ, that we are saved people. When Jesus says, if they hated me, they're going to hate those who love me. They're going to hate those who have found forgiveness in me. So when we're opposed for Christ's sake, it's like the Holy Spirit testifying, you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ, you belong to Christ. That's what's going on here. Though, enduring the difficulty that these men are enduring, they're thrown in prison. Um, even though we're confident that it will work out for our good and for the advance of Christ's gospel, still, it's painful. I don't want to pass over something too quickly. When Jesus says, as they hated me, as they treated me, I was arrested, you will be arrested. I was put to death, you will be put to death. There are so many places where Jesus says these kind of things. And as believers, sometimes we gloss over them. And then when difficulty arises in our life for our adherence to Jesus Christ, we wonder, what's going on? What's, what's, what's happening? What's happening is... Jesus' word is, is coming to pass. Everything that Jesus says will happen, both for himself and for those who love him, 
will occur because Jesus is God come in the flesh. Jesus cannot lie. He's truth personified. No darkness, no shadow, no turning. And so when Jesus says, if, you're, if they hated me, they will hate you. And so when you are receiving opposition for your testimony of Jesus, um, it, it is the word of Jesus Christ coming true in your life. Before we look at the arrest of the disciples of Jesus, I want to just spend a moment or two on the arrest of the master, which is to say Jesus, because it's significant, because as they are treated, he is treated. But I want to look at his treatment first. Look at Christ in his person and Christ in his work and then his arrest. And that's significant for us. Christ in his person, he is the second person of the divine Godhead, the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus is God. And there's no darkness, no shadow, no turning, no blemish. He's all holiness. Uh, he, is, he is Emmanuel. He is God come in the flesh. He's left glory to come and to live a life of suffering and death. Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. Um, he, he, in him there's no sin. He went around doing good to the bodies and the souls of men. And I, I think this is important for us. When people suffer, we see them being arrested. If you've ever gone, I mentioned this morning in Sunday school that I've been called a number of times to sit on a trial. When you go and you're in the jury selection process, you're not supposed to prejudge them. You're supposed to come and sit. When they're picking the jury, you're supposed to sit there as a neutral observer. You're not supposed to go, he looks guilty. Yeah, the guy, he looks guilty. Well, yeah, he probably did it. Um, Jesus Christ is not on trial because he was a murderer, because he was a drunkard, because he was any of these vile things. Jesus Christ is perfect God-man who dies as a wrath-bearer, taking the wrath of God due for the people due the wrath of God. So rather than wrath, Jesus gets the wrath and we get the love and the mercy and he's arrested. So the reason I bring up the courtroom setting is we think, well, bad things happen to bad people. Bad people get arrested. Bad people go to jail. Bad people get hung. Bad people get crucified because you're a bad person. But not Jesus. Jesus wasn't arrested because he was a bad person. Jesus is arrested and he is the best person, the most perfect person who's doing the best work that can be done. And the very people that Jesus Christ comes to save from the wrath of God. We've said, we all know Psalm 20, 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the wrath of God. The wrath of God due to sinners for their sin. Lying, drunkenness, fornicating, blasphemy. God's offended justice. Jesus steps in the place of that wrath for us. Do the wrath. He takes it. And those very people arrest him. You just think of that. When you see Jesus saying, My God, my God, uh, why hast thou forsaken me? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. These are the people saying, Come down from the cross and we'll worship you. And they're laughing and joking like this is a joke. And Jesus dies for people like this. How, how do we account for that? How do we account for that? Jesus leaves glory to be arrested and to be butchered like the worst criminal. By these 
very people that arrest Peter and John. How do, how do we account? What in Christ motivates him to do that? Love of the Father and love of sinners. And when, he, when we say love of sinners, I don't want us to let it roll off our tongue so glibly. Man, I mentioned this morning, I don't know why I've been looking at various documentaries on various obnoxious things in our country and other countries, um, namely eugenics and the practice of eugenics, which is obnoxious. Human beings, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, are not nice people. We are not nice people. When you look at Romans chapter 3, 9 through uh, 18, or 8 through 19, that's who we are. We're we're feet are quick to shed blood, and the poison of asp or vipers is under our lips, and no one seeks God. Everyone is, as George Whitfield said, is half a beast, half a devil, and that's who arrests Jesus. And those are the kind of people Jesus dies for. Unconverted people are vicious sinners. And Jesus Christ has overwhelming love to save vicious sinners. Jesus Christ died for for us while we were yet what? Enemies. He died for us while we were yet enemies. We're we're not good people. We're not half good people. We're not half bad people. We are this kind of people. He came to his own and his own knew him not. So the very people, the house of Israel, they arrest him. And not just the house of Israel, but the leadership of the house of Israel. Peter and John are on trial before the Sanhedrin. This is the high priest and the 70 elders plus some other people that are sitting there, the priestly class. These are, this is the leadership of, 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 of Israel, the highest supreme court of the Jews in the, days of, in the day of Christ, and they hate Jesus. These are the, we, we could say concerning the men, the leadership that arrest Jesus and arrest Peter and John, these are the, what would we say if we would bring it up to today? These are the professors in the seminary. These are the, the prophets, the priests, the preachers. These are the people that know the Bible the best. And they, they have lots of knowledge about Jesus from the Bible. But they hate Jesus. And they hate him so much that they're going to arrest him so that they can stop him. Think of the arrest of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who led the Sadducees and the Sadducees' guards with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus. Who led him? Judas. Judas, one of the apostles, a disciple of Jesus, handpicked, led these guards and these Sadducees to, to, to Jesus Christ in order to capture the Lord Jesus Christ. And, he, and he, he, did it, he betrayed him with a kiss. Just as an aside, we've talked about this a lot. There is no infallible church I know the Roman Catholic Church says that the, the Roman Catholic Church saves. I know Protestants say the church saves. I know Protestants say, say, says our per, church is almost perfect. It's almost 100% elect. You are whistling Dixie. The church does not save. Jesus saves. I get the church has the word. I get we have the ministry of the sacraments. If you put your trust in any preacher, any prophet, any priest, you are crazy. It was Judas an apostle that led the Sanhedrin, the ministers of the church, to butcher Jesus. And it's these very same men that rise up against Peter and John to arrest them. So what they did to Jesus, very same people are going to do to the people that love the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're told in our passage, look at verse 5. 
This is the very same people that arrest Jesus. Now arrest Peter and John. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. Annas, high priest, was there. Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, all who were of high priestly descent. Well, the, the sad thing about the, high, the, high, the cast of the high priest is they're being bought and sold. These men are puppet high priests. They're put there by the Roman government. The American government, I'm not picking on America, but we do this sometimes. We, we say we don't em- build empires and so on, and then we put down one ruler, and then we stick a puppet ruler in. I suppose other countries do this as well. This is what Rome did. said, oh, you have a couple of high priests? Well, we want our high priests, which is obnoxious to God. It's against the word of God. But these are the men. So these are the fellows that tried Jesus. These are the fellows that condemned him to death. Now these are the very same people that the servants of Jesus, Peter and John, find themselves in front of. We're told in verse 1 of our passage, as they were busy speaking to the people, busy uh, Peter and John, remember what they are. We've talked about this a lot. Not everyone in the body of Christ has the same function. Some people in the, 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 the body of Christ uh, occupy the place of an arm, uh, a leg, those kind of things. First um, uh, Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Romans chapter 12. First Corinthians 12 has the fullest treatment of it. God is the one that places us in the body of Christ where he wants. God's the one that distributes gifts. Not everyone has the same gift. What we are looking at is the person in the gift gift of being the spokesman. These are the heralds. And so we find them busy occupying their place in the body, which is speaking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we find Peter busy speaking to the people. If you've been studying the book of Acts or being paying attention, the apostle Peter and the other apostles have been busy, particularly Peter is in view. He's been busy preaching Christ from chapter 1. And in, in chapter 1, he's preaching uh, Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit, as Christ ascends in chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is sent down and descends in chapter 2. The Holy Spirit empowers, particularly the preaching ministry of the gospel, the gospel errors, ministers. He empowers them in a special way to persevere. Um, sometimes I hear men say to me, well, I, I want to be a minister. Praise God if you want to be a minister. My rejoinder is not to, to, to discourage anyone I usually tell people the truth. Pastor, my pastor, Pastor Hobbs, told me the truth. And he quoted a Scottish minister and said, a thankless job, a thankless job. And the notion is, if you enter into this work, is work. Work, work. And you're going to have the world of flesh and the devil. Your flesh is going to be fighting against you. And so when the Holy Spirit fills these men, particularly the preaching ministers, he is, he is strengthening them in a special, supernatural way to endure and to advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to suffer the things that they're suffering here, to be arrested, to be hated, to be hated by Jew, to be hated by Gentile. So this is not these men being called to a ministry where they're sitting around thinking big thoughts and smoking uh, cigars and drinking scotch whiskey and being called reverend. Um, this is not this at all. This is entering into the ministry. You are going to be hated, you're going to be arrested, and you're going to be killed for Christ's sake. Now go to it. So Peter's preaching Christ chapter 1, strengthened by the Spirit of Christ chapter 2. We find him in chapter 3, busy preaching. He's provided an opportunity in chapter 3 to testify again and again. We look at the ministry ministry of preachers, 
of Peter particularly, what is he busy testifying? Both when he preaches and when God affects a miracle through him, Jesus is the Christ. He says to the cripple in chapter 3, in front of the temple, in the name of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus who is the Messiah, stand up. And he stands up. Everything for Peter and the apostles in their ministry is Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. Believe in Jesus is the Christ. And now here in chapter 4, they're back at it, uh, preaching the very same message. But he's being faithful. Not only have we seen the consistency in the preaching ministry, particularly of Peter, we've seen the success. It was in chapter 2 with the preaching of the gospel. You remember how many people were saved in that day? Um, if you study revivals and those kind of things, various people in the Reformed camp have various views on what they think about revivals. Not so much what we think of revivalism, maybe from the Kentucky revivals onward, but uh, perhaps like Great Awakening, First and Second Great Awakening, things like that. Some massive work of the Holy Spirit where a massive number of people come to repent of their sins and truly believe in Jesus Christ. And, and so the ministers go out. If you've been busy looking at Peter's preaching, this is like, um, I remember we had a famous minister here, famous in the Reformed Church. I won't tell you his name, but he came here four, five, six, seven years ago. And I'm like, oh, he's the big boy. I cannot wait to hear. And he stood in the pulpit. It was a Sunday evening. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I agree with what he said, but it wasn't like, I can't believe the tricky stuff he found that I've never even seen ever in my entire life. I'm like, I say pretty much like what he said. This is like the plain old truth, which I love the plain old truth, but it's just the plain old truth. Look at what Peter's preaching met with 3,000 souls are saved. It's just plain old, it's plain old repent of your sins. You crucified sinners, flee from the wrath of God to come. Stuff you're not even supposed to say now. And look to Christ to be saved. And 3,000 people do. It's just a plain old truth. Plain old gospel. People are busy now trying to do tricky tricks. Tricky tricks, tricky tricks. Tricky tricks can fill up churches, but they can't fill up heaven. It's the plain old gospel that fills up heaven. And what we learn when we see... Well, I've never seen 3,000 people saved before all at once. Me neither. It must have been awesome. How do we account for that? Was Peter just... He just got up there and, man, he was just phenomenal. How do you account for 3,000 people being converted? God causes the growth. And then, in, and then later in, in the book of uh, Acts chapter 3, I think, chapter 2 maybe, and God was adding to their number, what? Daily, just through the ministry of the word, just plain old vanilla stuff. God was adding to the growth. And then in this passage, what are we going to see? 5,000 people. At the, on the very occasion of the opposition coming against the church, coming against the proclamation, at that very occasion, some hate, some receive. Some accept, some reject. 5,000. God, the desire of the minister in preaching, both law and gospel, but let's just focus on the gospel. Peter's preaching Jesus as he's doing here. What's his fundamental desire of the minister? When he stands in the pulpit and says, repent, believe in Jesus. What's the overwhelming desire that Peter would have in his heart? What's the, what's the purpose why he does this? For the glory of God. 
He wants to glorify God more than anything else. He wants to bring glory to God. And the way Peter, or any servant of Jesus, preacher, glorifies God is that he is the most faithful he can be to the word, both law and gospel. And then related to that desire of bringing glory to God is he wants people to believe the gospel. Sometimes preachers can preach and Christians can testify of Jesus to other people, but without the desire both to glorify God and for the people that we testify Jesus to, we may not desire that they believe. The overwhelming desire for the minister as Peter's preaching, he wants people to believe. He wants people to repent. He wants people to believe in Jesus and to be saved from the wrath of God to come. There's a story of Spurgeon said something to a minister who was downcast about something. And Spurgeon said, you don't really think just this plain old preaching business, you don't really believe that it's going to like work. People are really going to repent of their sins and really believe in Jesus, really go to heaven. You don't really think it's going to work. They're not really going to be sanctified by it. You don't really believe that, do you? And the guy said, well, no, I guess I don't. And Spurgeon said, yeah, that's why no one believes it. You don't believe it. You don't believe people are going to be justified. You don't believe they're going to be converted. You don't believe the word of God is going to conform them and sanctify them. You don't think it's good enough. And Peter does. And then God's purpose in the proclamation of the gospel is twofold. He has two purposes for the gospel. This is from the book of Corinthians. There are two smells to the gospel of Jesus. And we see both of them here in in chapter 4. To one entity, one body, uh, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the aroma of eternal life to them that believe. So it glorifies the mercy of God. And so we see the 5,000 people that say, we are sinners. Thou son of David, have mercy. And they're saved. That's the aroma of life to one body. And as I say, it glorifies the mercy of God. And then to another body, let's say in this case, the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, they reject Jesus Christ. God will also get glory. They're hearing the same gospel, different effect. It is the stench of, of everlasting eternal death to them that reject Jesus Christ. And God will get glory for his justice. So aroma of life for one stench of death to the other it magnifies the mercy of God on those who believe and it magnifies the justice of God on those who reject same gospel same gospel the Bible goes forth it never comes back void to God you think well it's it's meant to convert everyone that it it, 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 it comes to that's not true beloved read your Bible that is not true read act read uh, Isaiah chapter 6 1 through 10 here I am send me you remember God says, you know what? Your word's going to go forth. No one's going to believe my word and I'm going to judge the whole lot of them. And and Isaiah says, so is anybody going to believe? And God says, I'm going to leave a stump, a remnant. They'll believe. Glorify to the justice, those those who reject. Glorify the mercy to those who uh, accept. And so here, Peter and John get arrested for preaching the gospel of salvation of Jesus Christ and doing good to this crippled man in the name of Jesus Christ. And they're out busy doing good to people. Now, if you were to ask non-Christians in our, our land today what they think about Christians, like real Christians, what do they think? Oh, 
you're, you want to take away women's fundamental rights to butcher their children or all the, oh, we're mean and we're, we're this and we're awful and blah, 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 and therefore we should be pitched off the, I don't know, a high roof somewhere because we just, just do these bad things to bad people. Well, are they, is Peter being arrested, John being arrested because he's a rabble-rousing murderer? Is he out hurting people? No. Was Jesus out hurting people and that's why they arrested him? No. Jesus was out doing the most good, the best good, the perfect good. Peter and John, when they're saying to people, repent of your sins, flee from your wickedness, turn to Jesus, in him there's salvation and no other. Is that the best work that any human being can do for any other human being? The best work. The best work. Because it has benefits for this life and benefits for the next life. It's saving us for the best good and freeing us from the worst evil. They're doing the best work that can be done by any human being. And look at the response of the Sanhedrin. Think of drive down. I don't even pitch a fit at the, the, the Ruckmanites on Friday and Saturday. Yeah, they have signs and maybe they're a little wrath heavy and not enough gospel heavy, but at least they're out there. I don't see any OPC people out there, any, uh, any PCA people out there. At least give it to the Ruckmanites. They're standing out there with a sign with a, with a, with a, with a Bible verse saying judgment's going to come, flee from the judgment of God. That's actually a very good work. That's a very good work. And, and what we see with the Sanhedrin is what the natural man thinks about that message. They don't like it very much. So they're not being arrested for being murderers, though, though when they are arrested, they will be called murderers. They will be... They, Christians do enough goofy things that unbelievers can find goofy things in the Christian's life. But don't kid yourself. They call Jesus a friend of whores and drunks, and he never did any, anything wrong. So if you're expecting some fair treatment by an unbeliever, you, you are kidding yourself. And so if they can't find something bad in your life, they're going to make it up. And so they arrest these men, not because they find bad in their life, but because they hate what Peter and John are, are, are preaching. So they get arrested for doing good. And that brings us to a principle that the Bible uh, speaks about in Isaiah chapter 5. These churchmen who hate the preaching of Jesus and the preachers of Jesus and Jesus, they call what God calls good, they call what? Evil. And they call what God calls evil, good. I love our country. Love, love, love America. I will be 58 in August. I never, if you had asked me 10 years ago, the nonsense that we see out there, would I thought 10 years ago I would see it? Never. Never in a million years. Never in a million years. I didn't hear the, I didn't hear the word divorce until I was 11 years old. I grew up in a poor working class place, all Portuguese, all Irish. They did not divorce. I didn't hear the word divorce until I was 11 years old. I didn't know about homosexuality until I was way older. Never would we see this stuff, ever. Our country, and it even keep, creeps into the professing church, we call what God says is evil, we say is good. And what God says is good, 
which is Christ in the gospel, what do we say? That's evil. Could we not go to a professing church? Could we not go to a mainline, I don't know, a mainline anything church and just say the gospel? There's no salvation in any other. None. No Buddha, no no Muhammad, none. Only Jesus. And what are we going to get from the leadership of those churches? You're getting the right foot of fellowship. You're getting booted right out of that church. And they're going to tell you what? That's mean-spirited. That's unloving. No, it's very loving. And it's very true. So what we have here is the leadership of the church of Jesus' day saying to God, oh, what you call good, that's evil. And what God calls as evil, that's good. That's an unbeliever. And I'm going to say something by the opposition that these brothers, fathers in the Lord, Peter and John, endure at the, the hands of the leadership of the church, as it were. When we consider these things, this particular opposition, there, there are ways to test if we are converted or unconverted. These men hate the preaching of Jesus and they hate the gospel of Jesus. One of the ways that we can test ourselves to see if we are converted, what are our views on the law of God, particularly the gospel of God? What do we believe is the gospel of God in relationship to what the Bible says is the gospel of God? If God says, this is my good news, it's bound up in my Christ, my sin bearer, my wrath receiver, my reconciler, Christ, no other. If we say, praise God, oh, I love that message. That's the sign we have a good heart. But if we, like these Sanhedrin, like these, these elders, And scribes rise up and say, I hate that message. That is wrong. That's a sign of an unconverted heart. And not just conversion. We can testify, even the true believer, we can testify to the extent of our sanctification somewhat by testing our views on law gospel views against the Bible. Real Christians who love a real Jesus sometimes have really bad, wrong views on a whole host of other things. I just mentioned one of them, butchering babies. Take that view and lay it next to the Bible. Does God approve of this or discountenance it? And then if our view is different than God's view, we're supposed to have God's view. So it testifies, one, are we in Christ or out of Christ? And then it testifies also if we're in Christ, what's the extent of our Christ-likeness and our growth? And I know people don't like that message, but that's the truth. And so these people testify that they are apart from Jesus. Now, when you see the guys being opposed not for doing wrong, but for doing right. Here's something that ministers sometimes think and Christians, uh, us ordinary Christians sometimes think. We think like this. Well, if I'm being opposed for testifying of Jesus, which is what they're doing, if I'm being opposed by other people, that must mean I'm doing something wrong. There was a minister, when I was a carpet cleaner, I would drive around. I forget the the guy's name. Drive around in my truck. And the name of his show was how to, how, to share G- how to Share Your Faith in Jesus Without an Argument. And this guy was like, I would listen to him all the time. He would walk into the men's room and everybody would con- be converted. He'd go into a restaurant and the whole restaurant would be saved. <laughs> how does this guy do this? With what trick is he doing this? And I used to chuckle, like, how to share your faith without an argument. And I'm like, how's he doing this? Last time I checked, they killed Jesus. 
Last time I checked, they butchered all of the apostles of Jesus. Last time I checked all of uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, they chopped them up like hamburger, and they're living in goat skins in, in caves. But this guy's got the secret inside track, how to share this Jesus to a Jesus-hating world so they love you. Beloved, it's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite. if, If you are telling people Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by him, which is verse 12. There's no salvation in any others. And people don't oppose you? You're doing something wrong. You're not actually sharing those first things. Sometimes we think, I'm testifying for Jesus. And here's what we do. Well, I think you should probably go to church on the Sunday. Maybe read the Bible. Maybe pray every once in a while. That's not sharing Jesus. Hindus pray. Muslims pray. Catholics go to church on Sunday more than Protestants. That's not testifying of Jesus. That's not going to get you in a jam. Saying like general, you know, look to God, hope in God, pray to God. That's not this. The other is not going to get you in a jam. This will get you in a jam. Jesus says this, beware when all men speak well of you, right? What he means by that is when the majority of people speak well of you. If the majority of people are looking at this professing Christian preacher and they go, oh, he's doing great. He's doing great. People on the broad path speak well about people on the broad path. People on the broad path speak evilly against people on the narrow path. And you think, well, I have a question then. As a believer, do people consider your views, Christ-hating people, do they consider your views good or do they slander you? They think, well, I know tons of unbelievers. They think I'm great. Well, then I've got another question for you. Are you ever opening your mouth for Jesus? Ever. Do you ever say the name Jesus? No. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? I'm going to give you a light. I'm the light. And you're going to be the light of the world. And don't hide your, your light under a what? So when we walk around think, well, you don't want to ruffle any feathers. Well, you're not doing any good. Christianity is not just about a bunch of don't do's. It's positive good. This is the most positive good. We don't do it with our kids. We don't do it with our grandkids, at least when they're little. We tell them about Jesus. And so when we tell people about Jesus, the devil is going to rise up in opposition, which is true. Uh, but I want us to see something which I find very encouraging. All of this is under, the, as I say, the government of, of God. God is governing even the opposition to the proclamation of his, of his gospel, but it's meant to advance the gospel. So you may think to yourself, God's governing the opposition to the preaching of his gospel in order to advance the gospel. Yes, that's exactly right. You remember um, God put, was it Paul and Silas? Remember he put them in prison? God superintended the imprisonment of Paul and Silas. And what was some good for the imprisonment that God wrought uh, by Paul and Silas? Who, did, who, who got to hear the gospel that Jesus saves sinners? The, the jailer and the other people in jail. Look at who's going to get to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin. So when we look at this and think, wow, unbelievers are opposing and there's enemies opposing. No, don't, don't think discouraged. Don't think in a cowardly fashion. This is going to work to the advance of the gospel. For God so loved the world, 
he so loved the world of vicious sinners that he's going to do what? I'm going to have my servants arrested by a bunch of vicious sinners. And then I'm going to have my servants tell these vicious sinners there's salvation in Jesus Christ. Enemies, Pharisees, Sadducees, the rulers of Israel, they hate him. Okay, now preach the gospel. He did it with Paul. The jailer is saved. He does it later with Felix and all these other people. Jesus says to him, I'm going to show you how much you must suffer for my namesake. But Jesus already tells his men, I'm going to bring you before these powers, both in the church and to the state, and you're going to testify. So even, was it Joseph? Joseph's brothers, did they like Joseph or not like Joseph? They did not like Joseph. They sold him into slavery. Slavery, real slavery. Slavery that none of us would want to be slaves in. They sold him into slavery. He, He becomes the number two guy in the land. And then he meets them, and they're thinking, oh no, oh no, we're going to have the lifespan of a small-winged insect. And and Joseph says to him, nope, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The apostle Peter stands up in front of these people that hated Christ and crucified Christ. They'd hate him and are fixing to crucify him and says, Christ saves sinners. And will God save some of these enemies? Yeah, he will. And he'll get glory for his mercy. And will God judge some people that reject? He will. And he'll get glory for his justice. And that's God's business. And beloved, we look at this. We look at the love of God in Christ for leaving glory and suffering. And then for these ministers, for the love that these ministers have for Christ and for the love that these ministers have for enemies. Mostly we like people that are like us, and mostly we like people that like us. The faithful gospel minister has to love people. He has to love enemies. The faithful Christian, if we're going to be faithful to Jesus, we have to love our neighbor, we have to love our church member, and we have to love our enemies, like love them. And love them so much tell them this, that there's salvation in Christ. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.